The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Good morning. So today's scripture is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. You've on the screen. Okay. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up with all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the, boys, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, uh, we're in our new series of three weeks in now into our new series on 1 Samuel. And the title of the series is In Spite of Us. And what we have seen already in the first two weeks, and you know, we're going to see actually all the way through this whole book, are, are several things. One is that God loves his people. God moves in his people. God moves among his people. God uses his people, but he does so in spite of his people. God loves his people. God moves in and among them. He does amazing things on their behalf. He does amazing things in them, but he does it often, not just oftentimes, he does it always in spite of us. We see, we see a lot of screw-ups in 1 Samuel, and that makes me feel pretty comfortable because I am not known for a guy who is like just hitting home run after home run in my life. I don't know what your life is like, but I'm not that kind of guy. I, I kind of be in kind of like a screw up myself. We see a lot of people making bad mistakes that have 
tragic and far-reaching effects. And maybe you have made some bad mistakes that have had far-reaching or tragic effects. Maybe you're making bad mistakes right now. Or maybe you're living in a season where you're experiencing those tragic and far-reaching effects from decisions that you've made or somebody close to you has made. And, and let's just own this as we are in 1 Samuel, that sometimes that can be a little bit of a drag to read, right? Just screw up after screw up, like stupid thing after stupid thing happening, and we see like God move and all the stuff that happens, like the, the sad things that go on here, there's sad things in this passage. And it can be kind of a drag to read, but the greater thing behind and above all those other things, the greater thing that we see is that though the people in 1 Samuel continue to screw up, though they continue to mess up, just like you and me, that God continues to move in and among them. He continues to love his people and he does so in spite of them, and that's the good news for us in 1 Samuel, is he does the same thing for us in spite of us. He does the same thing for me, in spite of me. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're wondering about this Christianity thing, you're wondering about this Jesus thing, maybe you're new to church, or maybe you've been around church, and you're just like, you know what, it's never really, it's just never really rung my bell. I heard a story a couple, a few weeks ago of a, of a guy who grew up in church, he was in college, he had been around church his whole life, he had believing parents, and he, did, he wasn't sure if God was real because he saw people who were serious about God and it just didn't seem to mean the same thing to him. And so he either thought either God isn't real or I'm just not a part of this whole deal and he's chosen to move in other people and not in me. And maybe that's you here this morning, and you're here and you're wondering about this whole Jesus thing, about this whole Christianity thing. Here's the thing that we're going to see this morning and all the way through this series is that you don't have to come to him all clean and proper. You don't have to come to him having fixed yourself, having pre-cleaned yourself, having taken care of yourself. Because one of the major themes in the Bible, you could say maybe it's the major thing in the Bible, the great message that the Bible tells us is that every person, every single person, every person, that includes, by the way, every single one of us, Every single person who is alive, was alive, will ever be alive, and you fall into one of those camps, every single person are by our nature, we aren't whole, we're not right, we're not clean. All of us by our nature are not whole. If you've ever been by yourself, or maybe in a crowd, and you're wondering, man, everybody else around me seems to like figure this life thing out. They seem to be happy. They have relationships. They got their career. They got education, whatever it is. And you're like, everybody around me has, seems to have life figured out except me. I'm sitting here and I don't feel whole. I don't feel right. I don't feel clean because of things that I've done or things that people have done to me. I don't feel clean or right or whole. That is those are thoughts that every single person on the face of this planet has. 
The question isn't whether we're broken or not. The question is, what do we do with our brokenness? Because every single one of us are broken. No one is whole or right or clean. And that's what we see in our passage today. We see how two sets of people respond to their own brokenness. We see it in the temptation to compromise. So we're going to look at four things as we roll ahead this morning. We're going to see how moral compromise exposes. And we'll get to what it exposes, but moral compromise exposes. We're going to see that moral compromise grows. We're going to see that moral compromise destroys. And then the good news, we're going to see that moral compromise has a cure. Moral compromise exposes, it grows, it destroys, but it has a cure. All right, so let's get rolling. Moral compromise exposes, first of all. Uh, The past two weeks, we focused on Hannah. She's the mother of Samuel, who this book is named after, and we saw how she was barren, and how heavily that weighed upon her. The fact that she couldn't have children, it really determined and drove her identity and value. And that's understandable, right? Some of us here, like we're in that same position and we know how that affects us. But in this society it was even maybe to a greater extent because not only did you have this inner pressure and desire to bear children if you were a woman and then you couldn't and so you struggle with a sense of identity and value, but also society around you and not just society in general, but people in particular, sometimes husbands, in this case, the the rival wife, would tell you, you are not as valuable because you could not bear children. She had this this whole identity crisis where she she wanted to have children. She felt that that was what her call in life was to do, was to have children, and yet she couldn't have them. We see how she struggled with that, how her identity and value were threatened. And then this week, as we get to verse 12, the scene shifts more towards Eli, and who is the priest, the, head, the high priest, and his family. And what we're going to see, as we want to keep in mind as we go forward, is we want to we keep in contrast, see how did Hannah approach her area of weakness and her area of, we'll say potential sin, but she may have even sinned in this area of weakness, and we'll get to that in a minute, but how did she approach her area of weakness and her area of brokenness, and how did Eli and his sons approach theirs? So how did, how did Hannah approach hers, and how did Eli and his sons approach theirs? So let's look at verse 12 that uh, was already read first by Madeline, and let's, let's roll forward. It starts not pulling any punches right off the bat. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests or the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So what is happening here is that when the God had prescribed with Moses, this is how whenever you make sacrifices for you and your family, this is how it should be performed. And so the, he had laid out, this is exactly how it should happen. Uh, well, you're going to slaughter the, 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 the animal, and then you're going to bring the choicest parts, the fattiest parts. Because you have to remember, when we think of fat, we might think, oh, that's gross. But you got to think like, 
these, these are people, these are as an agrarian society, livestock were incredibly valuable and you rarely ate meat because you're killing your most valuable possession or some of your most valuable possessions. So unless you were extremely, extremely rich, you ate meat very seldom. So whenever the family would come to Shiloh with their livestock that they're bringing to sacrifice to the Lord, they would be excited because they're gonna sacrifice that to the Lord, but then the remaining part of the sacrifice, they're gonna get to eat. It's gonna be a feast. It's a very special uh, time. And the way that God prescribed for the Levites or the priests to be able to feed their family is they said, whenever you come, you're gonna offer uh, certain things to, to be burnt on the altar to the Lord. And then other parts, you're gonna come, you're gonna boil them, and then you're gonna offer them as a, as, as a sacrifice to the Lord. You're gonna present it to the Lord and you're gonna give it to the Levites, which are the, the, the tribe of the priests. You're gonna give it to them so that they and their families can eat that meat for themselves. Now, what was going on here is that at some point in time, it became a habit that the, the priest considered like, this isn't enough meat. We, or, and or, we don't like the piece that we're getting because he had prescribed these are the two pieces you're gonna get. You're gonna get the leg and you're gonna get the breast. And in chicken, those are two, two pretty cool pieces, but they didn't like it in whatever the, the, the livestock that were being presented to them. And so they, they were getting these pieces and they're like, either we don't like it or we're tired of it or it's not enough. And so they started this habit. They said, all right, here's what we're gonna do, everybody. While you are cooking the meat, we're gonna come and we're gonna take our, our three-pronged fork and stick it in the kettle and whatever we pull out, we get to keep. And I'm sure if you do that enough, you know exactly where to stick that fork in in order to pull out the choicest bits of meat for you and your family. So already here, we see the priests are already going above and beyond what God said to do in order for them to be provided for. They're already disrespecting God and the way that he prescribed the sacrifice to happen. But also, if you think about it, they're disrespecting the people. They're stealing, they're literally stealing meat that should belong to them out of their own pots. And we've probably seen that in some churches. I don't think I have to elaborate on it very much. But where pastors and leaders have abused their people and had their people give or give to a certain extent or give in a particular way so that they can line their pockets in ways that are above and beyond what God has prescribed. And let's just say that is sin and that is incredibly despicable. And we see how God thinks about it here in this passage. So they were taking the, they were sticking their fork in and taking it out. Moreover, verse 15, before the fat was burned. So this is the, the portion that God had called the Israelites to offer in a burnt sacrifice. The priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now, here, I can, if you've ever had boiled meat, it's not particularly the best way to eat meat, in my particular opinion. Uh, boiled meat is, is not like, you, very few people like, mmm, we boiled a chicken tonight, I can't wait to get home and eat that. Like, if you love it, that's fine, but it tends to be kind of bland, it, it tends to be not as, like, doesn't, not as flavorful as, like, this is, 
You can have a boiled chicken or you can have a roasted chicken. What are you going to choose? So if you're having boiled meat over and over again, it's not chicken, by the way, but if you're having boiled meat over and over again, I can imagine these priests would get tired of it. And they would say, man, I just want some flame broiled Whopper up in here. And so they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come and we're going to take this meat before you, before you boil it and destroy it. And we're going to take this choicest part, the fattiest part, the part that has all the flavor, like a good ribeye steak. We're going to take the ribeye for ourselves. And if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force. You can understand why they would get tired of it, but the actions are despicable. And if the man said to him let, him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. They were abusing the people that they were put over. This isn't just, this isn't just people stealing. These are people who are stealing and using force. These are people who are above in station, above the people that they're addressing. Thus the sin of the young men, these are Eli's son, sons, was very great in the sight of the Lord. Why? Was it because they were taking meat and roasting it? Not in itself. A flame broiled Whopper is really good. Well, a flame broiled burger is really good. A flame broiled ribeye is spectacular. If you boil that thing, it is not the same any longer. The problem was, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. What this shows us, the lesson that we can see both here and in us, is that, see, the way I picture it is sort of like uh, we're all perforated in key places. You're like, like you're going to tear out a coupon or you're going to tear out something and it's already perforated so it's easily separable from the rest of the paper. All of us have these areas of, of perforation, or, or if we think about it, sort of like fault lines. Like, like on, in the earth, there are fault lines there where there are two plates that are together, and there's a, a weakness in the, the face of the earth. We all have sort of fault lines. We all have weak places in our lives, and we all don't have the same weak places, like some of you, like Jonathan, I remember he, <laughs> I think he said this very nicely one time, but we were somewhere early in our relationship and we were, I don't remember if we were having a meal or we were talking about food. Either way, either one is likely to be happening with me that this is happening. And Jonathan said, hey, I, I perceive that you're one of the people that live to eat and I'm one of the people that, li- that eat to live. Like, I don't really care. Okay, I'm gonna eat, but I'm just gonna eat in order to live. I see that you live to eat. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably a fair assessment. Like, uh, we don't have the same fault line there, but he has his other fault lines. We all have our weak places in our life that, that, that sort of like that, 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 that rub and, and get us. The, so when, when, these, when these priests, when they are kept eating boiled meat after boiled meat after boiled meat, maybe you're a per- person, you're like, I don't really care to eat as long as I have some food, as long as my belly is full, I'm okay, I'll move on. But that, that, that ground against them, that found this weak place in them. Or maybe the weak place in them was that they didn't like being people who were, had to live off what people were giving them. I don't like to feel like what I'm living off is what somebody else is giving me. I, I don't like that. That's a weak place for me. It's a pride level for me. And so it makes me feel better if I can go and take what I'm going to eat. 
if I can prescribe how I'm gonna get it. Or maybe it's just like, I don't like the fact that God said I have to do it this way, that I have to eat boiled meat. I wanna do it my own way. It's a, it was what, somewhere in there, maybe multiple of those places, there were fault lines, this weak point in their life, this area that was ripe for compromise. That when the weight was put on it, it gave way. Like a perforated page, like when, whenever pressure was put on it, it started to tear away at that place in their life. And we all have those particular fault lines. We see it in Hannah. Her place, her fault line, her weak place was in terms of her identity and value based upon her being able to bear children or not. And we know that because we see how this story started out for her. Back in verse 10 of chapter one, it says she wasn't just like slightly bothered and she went and prayed to the Lord. It says that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. This is a deep thing for her. It moved upon her so much that when somebody said something to her rival, you should provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And without adding too much to the story between the lines, like this happened over years, Hannah had to have been wrestling day after day, week after week, year after year, God, why have you closed my womb? Why can Elkanah have baby after baby after baby, and yet I can't, I'm just asking for one, why won't she give me that? Why, why, why? And that would turn into, like almost to, to be tempted to turn into, well, we see she wept bitterly. It could become easily bitterness in her because she's being denied something. And the reason that moves her so much, it's not just that she couldn't have a kid. It's because of what not being able to have a kid said about her personal sense of identity and value. That was a fault line for her. But it was a different fault line for uh, the, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, which, by the way, just a little trivia that you don't care to know, it was a, the name of a character I played in a youth group skit when I uh, proposed to Megan. I was Phineas Fife whenever I proposed to Megan at youth. I, I, I know I'm a romantic during a youth group skit. That's how I proposed to her. I have memories now. I've got to turn back on this. Hophni and Phineas. Their fault lines were comfort and luxury, and maybe also power. Like, to them, not, not being able to, to, to be comfortable and to, be, to, to experience some luxury in their lifestyle, they were trapped into their lifestyle as sons of Eli, as Levites. They would never have businesses. They would never own land. They would never be able to build up a, a business empire. They'd never be able to, to be prosperous in the way that they saw some of their other friends or other people being prosperous. And they, maybe they, they didn't like that. They, that pushed on them the sense of power or their sense of identity and value, the sense of being denied luxury. That was a false line for them that, that, a fault line for them that pushed them down, that caused a place for compromise to happen. It bred the, the right circumstances for compromise to happen. Eli's fault lines were, were different. Probably comfort as well, because even though we're, as we get further down the, the passage, we see that uh, he may not have participated personally in some of the things that his son were doing, but it seems to show us that he was profiting from the things that her sons, his sons were doing from several reasons. One is that like, the prophet who comes to him tells him, so it seems to allude to that, and also it says that he was a, a very large man. He was, he was enjoying that roasted meat, probably. 
He was high on the hog on that. He's like, I'm not going to participate in that personally, but if they're going to bring it to the table, I'm not going to let it go to waste. But also, maybe the deeper fault line for Samuel was he had a, probably had a fear of rejection. We're going to see in a few minutes that he actually ended up finally saying something to his sons who were abusing their power. He finally says something to them, but he doesn't actually do anything to change the situation. And maybe that was because he had a fear of rejection. That if I push my sons too hard, they're going to not want to be around me. I'm an old man and I like my sons to be around me. If I push them too hard, like maybe they'll reject me. We all have our own false lines and we, we all fault lines and we're all going to be tested on those areas. And they're different for each of us. And when we're tested on those areas, those weak areas, those false lines, what, what, what it, those fault lines, what it does is it exposes our personal area of weakness. When we see and we feel the pull towards compromise, what, we, what we're looking at is it's not just about, the, it's not just about the, the topical issue. It's not just about the meat. It's not just about not being able to bear children. It's not just about my sons, what they're doing. It's about the, the underlying area, the underlying line of weakness underneath that that feeds that, that temptation to compromise. We're all going to be tested on the fault line of secrecy. You know what I'm talking about. Like, nobody will know this. And we find that truly, like, there's things that we would not imagine that we would do, but when we get into a point where nobody else is around and we think there's not going to be any repercussions, nobody's going to call me on this, nobody's going to say anything, and I'm all alone in a place in a time of secrecy, all of a sudden, we feel the pull and the tug, this gravitational pull to compromise. We're all going to be tested on the fault line of, of power. There's a saying that power, uh, you know, power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts uh, ultimately or absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, but I don't think that's really true. I think power exposes our areas of corruption. Power exposes our areas of weakness. When we get a little bit more money, we get a little bit more position in our job, we get a little more position in wherever we have, and we're not quite as accountable as we used to be, and people will do things that we ask them to do simply because we ask them to do it or, tell, or we tell them to do it, all of a sudden we feel this pull towards compromise. We're going to be tested along the, the, the fault line of sexuality. We see that with Eli's sons in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and they kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how, and this is the heartbreaking thing, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These men, these priests, these men in power were using and abusing their position for these helpless women who were under their power and under their leadership and under their authority, whenever they were supposed to be priests who stood between God and man and represented God to man and represented man to God, they turn around and use and abuse their position of power for sexual return. And we see that. Whenever the, we are in a position where that's exposed to us, 
whether it's through power or otherwise, we feel we're gonna be tested on the fault line of sexuality. And just like Eli and his sons, we're gonna be tested upon the fault lines of comfort and of luxury. This pull that we have, this area of weakness that, that when, whenever it's pushed and pressed, it pull, we feel a gravitational pull into that area. Now, an area of weakness, just to keep the confusion, try to separate the confusion here, an area of weakness isn't necessarily a sin. But we all feel these pulls in particular areas, right? And yours won't be the same as mine. Certain weak places in our lives that whenever they're pushed or, or exposed, we feel the pull there. But that, that pull in itself, that weak spot, isn't necessarily sin, but it is a breeding ground for sin. Those areas of weakness that we have are breeding grounds for sin. And we see how different people respond to that. We see how Hannah responds to that. She is pulled down, she's weighted. It even talks about how like, we get the, the feeling that she, is, that she is burdened when she says she was, she was pouring out her soul before the Lord. That's what she did. She took her burden, she took her weight, she took her this pulling of this, I don't know who I am anymore if I can't have children. And she went and she took that to the Lord. But Eli and his family, they didn't do that. It starts off the section very clearly by saying, the sons of Eli were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. So when we feel those areas of weakness and we feel that pull towards sin, the question is how are we gonna respond to that weakness? We all have it, but how are we gonna respond to it? The, The sin itself that it can lead to is a problem. These things that we see Eli's sons doing, uh, disrespecting the Lord and his offering, abusing their power, sexually exploiting these women at the, at the tabernacle. All these things are sin, but it points to a deeper problem. We see Eli and his response to his sons. That, the way he responds or doesn't respond is sin, but it points to a deeper problem. Why wouldn't he confront his sons? Why wouldn't he be stronger? Why wouldn't he stop what is going on? That compromise, moral compromise, exposed the deeper problem. And then the other thing we see in this passage is that moral compromise grows. It, moral compromise and sin never stand still. Areas of moral compromise and sin are never satisfied. It's always seeking to grow. It's always either expanding or shrinking. It never stands pat. I would imagine that Eli, as he was training as a young man to be a priest, as he was maybe even up to the point where he is becoming the high priest, we don't know exactly how it played out before this, but certainly as a young man, I can't imagine him saying, man, when I become high priest, I'm gonna be lackadaisical and I'm gonna let things go and when my sons get older, I'm not gonna govern them and I'm gonna allow them to abuse their position and abuse women and go against the law of God. He probably didn't dream that. Eli, at this point in his stage in life, we probably see him okay or closing his eyes or winking his eyes at issues that he never would have imagined 10, 15, 20 years before this. But over time, moral compromise that breathes in these areas of weakness that we have grows and grows and grows. And all of a sudden, we see ourselves doing things, responding to people, 
acting in ways that we never would have imagined. All of us in here have experienced that or are experiencing that. Where you look at your life, you say, man, I don't know how I got here. I never would have imagined doing the things that I'm doing or allowing the things I'm allowing or saying the things that I'm saying. But bit by bit, moral compromise and sin expanded and expanded. And each action that we make seems to make sense. At some point, like 100 years before this, 400 years before this, it would have been crazy talk to think of priests not uh, operating in the sacrificial system the way they were called and going and stealing meat from people and stealing meat from God and his sacrifice. But bit by bit, bit by bit, all of a sudden it seemed to be a normal thing and it seemed to make sense to go through and take the fork and push it in there and take the meat and then threaten people with physical harm and physical violence if they don't give you the part that was supposed to go to the Lord. We, we find ourselves in a state of twisted logic where, where things seem to make sense now that would never would have made sense before and what has happened is our hearts are being hardened. The things that used to bother us don't bother us as much anymore. And then down the road, they don't bother us at all. And it pushes us deeper and deeper. It pushes our sin wider and wider in areas of moral compromise and sin that we never would have imagined. And what it does is it makes us cowards. We see that with Eli and his sons. Eli, the high priest, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, did not have the guts to actually do anything more than just say, verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And then it just says they would not listen to the voice of their father. He didn't do anything more that we have record of. He just said that one thing, and he had the power as their father, and he had the power as the high priest to stop it, and he didn't. Moral compromise and sin make us cowards. They dull our senses. And the problem is that when we do try to address it, when someone says something to us, or we look ourselves in the mirror and we say, all right, all right, self, we're not going to do this anymore. We need to stop. We're not going to go down this way. We're not going to go down this route. We're going to make a decision not to do this anymore, self. You're having your little pep talk in the mirror. You're like, all right, tomorrow things are going to be different, or today things are going to be different. And you fast forward a day or two, and you're back in the same habits that you were before, and you can never get out of them. The reason we can't get out of them, a pep talk, a, a decisions won't work is because the, these, the sin, the moral compromise that we are in, that we are doing are being fed by and are trying to feed these deeper areas of weakness that we have. It could be our sense of identity and value. It could be a sense of what, of, of sort of a deep sense of, of, of belonging. It could, be, it could be a sense of loneliness or whatever it is underneath that sin that's pushing it. It feeds each other. That is feeding the sin and the sin is trying to feed that and it's just a vicious cycle that never fills anything. Just keep, or find ourselves locked in limbo between the 
two, moral compromise exposes, moral compromise grows, and then we see moral compromise destroys. This is that tragic part that we were talking about. Verse 27, and there came a man of God to Eli. It's interesting, by the way, this man is in, we, we don't have his name, it's just a nameless man of God, a nameless prophet that comes to Eli and says to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him? So he's saying, he's laying out here, by the way, he's laying out that Eli comes from Aaron when God chose Aaron and his descendants to be his priests. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And this is the key phrase here, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. I also think that's a clue that this whole idea of prosperity and power was also what was moving Eli, or at least his sons. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come to pass upon your two, shun, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Man, that's, that's bad news, right? That is bad, sad news. He's saying that judgment is going to come. That as our hearts, as Eli and his sons, as their hearts were hardened and their sin multiplied, and as our hearts are hardened, as our sin multiplies, destruction always follows. Destruction always follows. God has written it into the economy of the earth that destruction and death always follows sin. And the problem is that even when we hear dire warnings, Eli warned his sons, the prophet comes and warns Eli, even as the warning comes, it's not enough at some point to actually change us and move us. Our hearts become so hardened that we become like Eli, Eli's sons when it says that they didn't listen to their father because it was the will of the Lord at that point to put them to death. Their heart was so hardened, there was no going back anymore. And that is sad. And that is a bummer, Randy, to share with us this morning. But that is the absolute God's honest truth. 
And it should serve not as a bummer to us, but it should serve as a waking, as a wake-up call. It should serve as a, as a warning. It should serve as a herald to say, because here's the other thing is that until that point happens, when the warnings come, the warnings come because repentance can be found, which is the fourth thing. Moral compromise destroys, but then moral compromise has a cure. Interlaced to this whole story is actually good news. And we see it in, the, in this sort of contrast between Hannah and her family and Eli and his family. Eli and his family, trained, pedigreed priests of God. And Hannah, a woman who was considered practically chattel in ancient Israel, a, a woman from the, from the country, changes the whole trajectory of herself and her family as she comes to the Lord and offers, lays down her place of weakness before him. And instead of leading to destruction, it leads to joy, it leads to a cure for her. We see it in the passage of the past two weeks that we've talked about with her. We also see it interlaced through this chapter. That's the beautiful part that you don't want to miss. That right in the middle, in verse 18, whenever it's talking about all the things that Eli's sons are doing, it stops and it says, Samuel, verse 18, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and Take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Eli, Samuel, who she gave to the Lord, is ministering before the Lord. It's this concept that he is actually worshiping the Lord in the Lord's presence. His focus is not on the exterior. His focus is on the Lord himself. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and would say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked the Lord is ironic that Eli would be the person who would say this. So then they would return to their home. And in verse 21, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And then it ends that section by again by saying, and the boy Samuel grew what? In the presence of the Lord. Samuel and Hannah's focus was not no longer on the exteriors, no longer on what they liked. It was no longer in this channel of weakness that we all have, even though it's different for each person. Their focus was now on and in the presence of the Lord. They were worshiping, and that's the cure for moral compromise and sin and those deep areas of weakness that we all have. The cure is worship. The cure is turning our focus from ourselves and what we do not have and focusing it on the Lord and all that he does have. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We have this picture of him focusing and worshiping. It's, when it's talking about this wording back in verse 18 through 21 of him uh, ministering before the Lord, he's clothed in a linen ephod, which is the garment of the priest. It's, it's showing us that his focus, his push, his, pre his face was turned towards the Lord, towards worship of him. That's what turned Hannah back in chapter one when she went before the Lord at the tabernacle and poured out her heart before him and she left, though, 
all of a sudden, no longer downcast in face, eating with the rest of her family because God had changed her heart. Her focus was now on him. She saw his sufficiency and his greatness, and she found in that the true balm to heal those places of weakness. Uh, Grace pointed this out this week when we were talking about this passage, and I thought it was a really beautiful thing. It's the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is, if you're familiar with it is, or not, is they, they had this uh, tradition where if you break or chip a plate, a porcelain plate or a cup, instead of throwing it away like we do, they take it, and it's a painstaking, uh, very hard, arduous process. They piece it back together, but they don't just piece it together with, with super glue. They piece it together with this plaster that is interlaced with bits of gold or silver or platinum. So that over time, generation after generation, as the, each bowl or cup or plate is chipped and broken again, maybe if you have a son like I do, maybe it happens in less than a couple of generations. Over time, by the work of an artist, those seams are healed, they also become the places of the greatest beauty in that cup, of the greatest strength in that cup or sauce or, or dish. And all of a sudden, those places of weakness and brokenness no longer are a liability, but are our places that we showcase God's glory and his greatness and his sufficiency most clearly. Where we showcase God's love most clearly because that's what has healed those broken places in us. He doesn't just put us back together. He doesn't just heal those those fault lines. He redeems them and he beautifies them. So all of a sudden, Hannah's, what was Hannah's great story in life? Her great story in life was that she had this great place of weakness and brokenness She gave it to the Lord, and the Lord filled it. Samuel didn't fill it. The five kids didn't fill it. There's nothing in the world enough to fill those empty places in you and me that are breeding ground to sin. She celebrated the fact that she discovered that God was more than enough And that's what she became known for. You and I, in closing, you and I, God doesn't use us or move in us or heal us or redeem us or save us in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our sin, the things that we've done. He does it because of those things. To showcase his glory and beauty as he heals us and he declares that to the people around us. And your testimony won't be, man, I, I was awesome when I came to the Lord. You say, I was broken. And I had nowhere else to go. I had tried everything else. But I bowed my knee before him, and I turned to him, and I found there a balm of healing for my deepest wounds, my deepest brokenness. And I found the salve that would cut off my greatest sins. And I stand here not simply ashamed of those things, but declaring that he made it right.
and whole and clean. And we get to walk around declaring that to the people around us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.